This is the Things We Do podcast, a podcast about film life, television, culture, mental health, and all that fun, jazzy stuff. Today, I've got my special guest and friend, Margaret Thanos. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you for joining. Um, so, Margaret, where did where did all this start for you? Where did the journey? The journey. And where did and, and you know because the wonderful world of the internet probably don't know who you are and what you do. But tell mm. us everything about you. Everything about me. Oh, gosh. <laughs> How long have you got? Uh, <laughs> um, cool. Well, I guess the journey started for me. Um, well, I did do um, ballet when I was four years old and um, I quit almost immediately because I didn't get cast in the lead role. And I think that <laughs> is the great precursor to my entire career. Um <laughs> So I moved on from dance. I realized dance wasn't my thing. And yeah. then uh, when I was seven, I think I was in grade, I think my grade two teacher said, this kid has a lot of energy. It would be really great <laughs> if she did a drama class so she could yeah. stop the energy <laughs> um, in the classroom. Um, and so I was sent to a drama class and it sounds cliche like I, it sounds very corny but truthfully I've known that I wanted to work in this industry ever since that very first drama class really yeah and I've been committed very committed to it ever but since. did <laughs> did you ever suspect it kind of to shift more into you know in the, behind the scenes than in front of the camera um I don't think so I think I spent most of my uh, high school schooling life yeah from that point onwards being like I'm gonna be an actor and that's all I'll ever be um and then you know a few months later I found myself directing my v very first ever play and yeah I think I found that very um that experience sort of opened my eyes to the possibilities that were available to me yeah um and I've sort of been able to explore activism a lot more and obviously directing as my sort of main thing um a lot more while still like performing every now and again because it's so much fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a, the, look, it is um but i mean like you know directing is also kind of one of those weird juggling like yes. fine arts um especially the balance that i feel like a lot of um directors have which is not getting angry at your cast when they don't do the things that you yes, want yes. them to entirely do how are you how are you at sort of mediating when like your frustrations when you're creating yeah um i think like a big focus of my directing practice is trying to deconstruct that kind of typical masculine idea of what a director is i think yeah when i directed that first ever play i think i brought a lot of my idea of what i thought a director did which was based off of like tarantino and like <laughs> the really famous directors who are mostly all male um, and I think that I like took that into the room and then realized that that wasn't what was yeah. going to work. And that wasn't the process that I wanted to create. And then over the course of my career since then, I think I've been working to try and find ways to deconstruct the idea of a director as this sort of patriarchal authority figure yeah. and into something a bit more collaborative and a bit more um, willing to be understanding because I think the safer that art artists feel in a space, the more likely they are to create great art. I a hundred percent agree with that. That, it, and it's very it's it's very interesting. That's a very male dominated field. It is um, still. 
Sadly. <laughs> Still sadly to this day. Um, and a lot of, I guess, white men. Mm. It's not exactly a diverse field when you, you know, um, and there's something I talk a lot about, which is, you know, like you see it in our news reports and like the only real channels that have any diversity are probably like SPS and ABC. Mm. Everywhere else is very white. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think that's diversity like – uh, in front of the camera mm. uh, and behind the scenes is like a whole other different level yeah. of diversity that's not really being looked at because no one cares about what's behind the scenes. No, you know? it's it's a real shame. Like, is that something you're really trying to, you know, obviously push towards mm. your storytelling and everything? Yeah, definitely. Um, like I own a company called Queen Hades Productions and in that company we've really been focusing on trying to make sure that every production has a really solid balance of diversity and isn't mm. just sort of like looking at one type of group or one group of people. Cause I think sometimes companies get caught in this tricky position where they position themselves as a company that caters to a certain thing, but that also leads them to struggle with certain types of diversity. And we're trying, we're trying really hard to bring people in and, and help to train them up because I think that's probably, especially in Sydney, the, the point where we're, currently missing is there's this really big gap between um access to training and then access yeah. to the industry itself yeah that's a that's a that's a hard yeah that's a hard sort of like shift as well to mm-hmm. you know because i agree with that i feel like the problem we have um wholeheartedly in australia is we don't really teach people to be different like mm-hmm. we you know and it, it comes across in acting as well it comes across as you presenting very like one way and yes. like you know the hero the villain like it's very it's very like straight narrow and to the and it's always like a focal point rather than us as being creatures of very complexity and um mm, interfacednaces yeah. uh, like i've i i 100% agree with you like do you think then <laughs> my question for you is do you think that most companies especially in australia and in the western world are kind of you know aren't as progressive as we think as a society. (laughs) I think every Western country is at a different point. Um, Mm. I think I worry about, um, you know, I obviously understand the the term Western, um, but I think I do worry about lumping us all together because I think, I mean, particularly in recent days, looking at the US, um, I would say we're much further along than they are at the moment. Oh, God, yeah. Um, I would hope at least. But then um, I if think... If we do what yeah. they did, that is atrocious <laughs> and, and not too far of, you know, what they tried to do with the Liberal government, but, mm. you know... Well, yeah, and I think I think we often as a society, because we are kind of that, like, coloniser society yeah. where we, we're, we're made up of so many different colonizers having come and become this melting pot that is Australia and I think that because of that we often um feel that the identity of the US reflects our identity but but it actually doesn't um and I feel like we should be conscious of that because I would say that in the UK um particularly in the arts industry I feel like they're a bit further along than we are in terms of diversity and then Mm. somewhere like the US I think they're still sorting out all of their stuff and we're sort of sitting somewhere in the middle it's 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 very much the midwest as well mm. it has a lot of controversy which you know if if i blanket anything it is the midwest because yes. it is very blanket view um and it's and it's like if anyone hasn't kept up you know basically um i don't know the term like it's um what was the actual like 
canonical term that 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 was the um the choice because I know it's basically just removed women's rights yeah, to so, le- you know legalize abortions or anything like that. But that it was like Roe and Roe versus Wade. Is yeah, the, um, the case and that was a case um that came ab- about during the second wave feminist movement mm. um and basically allowed for women all across the US to have access to safe abortions. Mm. Um, But the overturning of that now means that different states can legislate different levels of access to abortion on the basis of what their state decides, basically. Which is nuts. Yeah, crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's basically like if that even happened, you know, here – and, and, and like, and and I feel, you know, th- God to anyone who thinks that equal rights are a thing, mm. is it? It just it goes like, you know, what's that saying of ten steps forwards, two steps back kind of situation? But this feels like twenty steps back. Like yeah. it just, it really does because that was decades ago. Now that yeah. that legislation and the idea that we're literally moving backwards into like this old. We have to fight the fight that these feminists from so long ago had to yeah. fight. It's so sad. Like, and I just feel like you know, you can't. We can't live in a society where you know, you know, it's like when Scotland like made um, sanitary products for women free. Yes. And I was like, oh yeah, this is the best thing since you know ever, like since sliced bread. And then it was just like here we were like, you know what, we're going to charge you for that, and we're going to charge you for like your your rights basically mm-hmm. to have COVID vaccine. You know, like. Um, you yeah. know, like for just getting um, rat tests. Mm. And I was like, how is that legal? Like, how are they not free? I know. It's crazy. Yeah. So it's like, I feel in our case as well, we've got backwards mentality here as well. It's, Absolutely. Um, it's progressing forward. Mm-hmm. I think that with the change of government, with the, you know, like, but I mean, you know, look, it's still run by white men. It's still, yes. <laughs> it's still not perfect. And, while I think, yes, it's great to not have someone probably as clueless mm. and as privileged uh, as Scott Morrison was, yeah, um, who was just a total asshole. Um, it is kind of I want it to become this sort of like society society where Australia does move forward because we do have a lot of people who are very progressive, but then you'll find pockets of us who aren't who yes. live in the same suburb. Like, or, you know, live like two streets down and they're suddenly like, nah, I don't think that, um, you know, like these people should be mingling with these people. Like how dare, you know, everyone, you know, mingle and, you know, and yes. cross, yeah. you know, ethnicities and cultures and everything. I was like, why? Uh, <laughs> um, like, yeah. Well, I definitely live in a bubble. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm aware of it and I'm like, yes, I, I know my arts bubble is a bubble. Um, but yeah. I think I'd rather stay like be comfortable in my bubble and feel like I can say the things that I want to yeah. say and speak out. But yeah, it's, it's sad to think that there are communities like probably right around the corner from us that completely disagree with most of the things we're saying right now. I know. And it, and I feel like it just, it makes, it, it, I feel like also feminism is such a dirty word, mm. it, it, like inadvertently. like It has become stigmatized. Um, mm. Like I think I'm really fighting against it. Um, in a lot of my activism, I really try to use it as much as possible because I think that it's the the fear of using it. I remember being in school and it was like, oh yeah, like I definitely believe in equal rights, but I wouldn't use the word feminism to describe me or feminist to describe me. And I think I think it's that is that, um, you know, I, I always preface it with like talking about intersectional feminism um, mm. because there are different types of feminism. But um, I think that it's sad that 
when I was going through school, there were so many girls that were afraid to use it because they thought it made them less attractive or less, you know, whatever. It's just stupid. <laughs> it's so like, it's, it, it is a legit understanding. Like I get that, but it is so sub, like surface level yeah. of paranoia. Yeah. 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 Um, because if no one's going to find you attractive because you're a feminist, <laughs> that they, they've got more issues than yeah, like. You. you probably don't want to be with them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, like, yeah, I I remember the first time I ever heard my dad say that he was a feminist was probably when I was about seven or eight. And, yeah, and wow. like, my family, like, my dad was a stay-at-home dad. Mm-hmm. So I had that upbringing. Yeah. I had the dad who stayed home, looked after the kids, and my mum went out and worked. So that was the mentality. And then dad would do these stints because he was a photographer. He would go for, like, a month and disappear for a bit. And then we'd have a babysitter who was mostly, like, you know, a female, so it was like, you know, just, but, you know, she was lovely and about 18, 19 um, and would take us to do things and then mum would come home and, you know, look after us and everything. But I never had this sense then women didn't go to work and they didn't go and do Mm. things and there wasn't this sort of like society when I heard people, you know, had these mothers who were always home and I was like, I never had that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've also been very lucky. I think um, both my parents are incredibly educated. They both have uh, PhDs. Um, I am not living up to it. Uh, <laughs> but um, but I think it's been really great for me to grow up in a household where both parents had equal levels of education and, mm. and had, you know, were they could hold their own in an argument like it wasn't about gender and it wasn't about who you were. It was just about like what you had to say and if you could you know, there's lots of interesting conversations that happen around my dinner table. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> you can make, I always feel like those are the best kind of conversations when you're like, wow. Um, but I mean, like, you know, also like, because of your, so you were born here? Um, I was born in Melbourne, yeah. Yeah. And then your family, were your parents also born in Australia or did they um, migrate or? Um, my mom's side of the family has been in Australia for quite a long time. Yeah. Um, but my dad's, my dad wasn't born in Australia. He's from Cyprus. Yeah. Um, and he, uh, emigrated here in the fifties. So. Wow. Okay. Long time ago. Um, <laughs> during like the, uh, post-war kind of, uh, immigration of Italian and Greek. And yeah. That kind of, uh, era, part of the world. So, yeah. I oh, my, my goodness. Did he... Was it fa- um, like because obviously it would have been a kid back then, yes, so yeah. it was like parents doing. Yeah, yeah. So his dad went ahead. I think years or months ahead. Um, mm. I've been doing this project with him where I sit him down and record him talking about his life, and um, we've been going through it. And and his dad went ahead, and then like the kids and his mum or my grandmother came later. Wow. Yeah. So that would have been an extraordinary change. Yeah, yeah. Not a word of English, nothing like that. And kind of having to basically assimilate into Anglo society in the 50s, yeah. Which is a a tough enough time. It's apparently to where we are now. Um, It it was very different. like Very different. I think especially for those um, sort of Southern European. Yeah. Yeah. Because they were, they, they were for people who don't know this, they were called New Australians generally. A lot of yes. immigrants were called the New Australians. Mm, yeah. Um, or, and 
generally not liked very much by the no, the already colonized <laughs> people who don't look I have very contention about these you know the privilege of Anglo-Saxon people who already lived here and had stolen the land yeah. off other like it was a very stupid way of looking at it going these people have moved and immigrated from like you know like countries that you know they didn't want to live in anymore and then suddenly it's like well you also moved here Mm. And your ancestors moved here by choice and, and basically tore apart this land and made it your own. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting how now, you know, because years later we're looking at, you know, like the 50s and now like through to now. Yeah. 70, it's, 70 years later. Yeah, well, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> 70 years later. I forgot to add the other 20. Um, but, yeah, it's kind of nuts how much like even, you know, Australia has changed in that time. And, like, how multicultural it is now. Yeah, yeah. And, I, like, I'm very lucky to have always grown up in a household where, um, like, my dad has written books on multiculturalism and, and mm. it's been a really big part of uh, my life and seeing how important it is that we have community groups and we have um, engagement with community groups from the government and all sorts of things like that. I think um, it's – I'm very proud to say that Australia is a very successful multicultural nation even if there's still a lot of work to be done yeah yeah i mean it's a long list of like things that need to be done yeah. but i mean like lots yeah yeah <laughs> but i mean like that's really extraordinary do you feel like now though being you know like an adult and you know and versus when you were a kid mm. do you because i have this conversation with people regularly which is you know um the term white passing which always seems to be a controversial yeah topic it um is, yeah. <laughs> especially with like um you know and I, I find it very baffling because it it's for me, I guess, because I've always grown up in an Anglo-Saxon kind of background, so it doesn't. But I'm like, well, everyone is different. Like, mm. we all have these differences. We all have, and that's, I think, really important in storytelling, obviously. Yes. But I feel like people don't acknowledge, they don't want to acknowledge their own culture or their own, I, you know, where, they're, where their family's from or they mm. just want to go, no, nah, I'm not, you know. I don't care how people see me. It's just who I am kind of thing. I think it's very complicated. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it is a very complicated topic um, because personally, like, I think there's been a lot of change over the past decade as well. I think I spent a long time when I was growing up answering the question, where are you from, over and over and over again. But now I think because of movements like Black Lives Matter and, and where we've really focused, mm. we've shifted our focus, rightly so, to BIPOC and, and Indigenous and First Nations and, and looking at the disadvantage that exists there. I think um, people from Southern European backgrounds and sort of white passing backgrounds have sort of been lumped into the Anglo... Yeah. Anglosphere, um, for me, like being half Anglo-Saxon and half Cypriot Greek, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting dynamic because I feel like sometimes I do feel pressure to not acknowledge yeah. my Greek heritage or not acknowledge it because I don't want to like claim anything in an, and I don't want it to look like I'm trying to claim <laughs> diversity when I'm not. Like I feel, like, but I also do feel like there is some stuff to be worked out in Australia about what the different migrant experiences have been yeah. through time um, and how we like develop that and, and make sure that everyone feels like they can acknowledge their identity. Yeah. I 100% agree with that. And I think we walk this, you know, like I think the Black Lives Matter movement 
is great and you know and but i remember watching a documentary which came out of the city film festival which mm-hmm. was about you know indigenous um cops who were working in wa yeah right. and great film anyone who goes um should go and find it i i think i can't remember the name of it for the life of me i should but it was a great film great doco and it's what it kind of surprises me is how many in, you know indigenous people aren't in the police force yes. it's very minimal yeah and it you know that should be and then you wonder why there's such a high crime rate and and, and discomfort and mistrust within the law enforcement and everything yeah i mean i think like i'm not poised to speak so super accurately about First Nations issues but I think that um, if there's anywhere that we are absolutely failing it is in the area of representation and Mm. and, um, assistance to First Nations um, communities. Uh, I spent some time in a First Nations community when I was 13 years old up in the Northern Territory and I think seeing the disparity then really really affected me but I reflect on that experience as also kind of white saviory yeah. now like i don't think i processed it then because we didn't really use terms like that but i reflect on it now and i'm like yeah that was super like we just went there and <laughs> we like did stuff with them and then we never came back like that was terrible um and i think there's a lot of stuff like that still going on that we as a society and particularly the anglo side of our society yeah it needs to just fix up <laughs> i it's it, we have this savior complex we really do, and yeah. um, you know, and and it's funny because every time I talk about these you know problems, I am uh, you know hyper aware mm. of a white man who is in a very privileged position talking about other people's disadvantages, yeah. and whether or not that puts you know puts uh, shame on me, it, it's not to br- it's bring awareness. That, you know, people are different. But I think the problem I find is that when people just go, they they pat themselves on the back like they've done a good job. And it's like, I'm doing no job other than just telling how I disagree with societal choices that we've made. But I don't expect, you know, yeah. to, to be able to fix those choices either. I'm not running in there going, I have the solution. Like, I don't. And I don't think a lot of people do. And I think people who do think they've got the solution, why aren't you actively doing that solution? Like, it, yeah. you can't be a... I feel like you can't be passive, especially as an artist, and especially as, like, we've we've got a very interesting, you know, like, way of telling perspectives and making moving people. But from the time they get into the theatre or the, the film and then by the time they leave hopefully we make them still think about it in a few weeks or month time but sometimes you know it depends on the audience yeah i mean i i think lots of my art is very activism driven mm. um as i said like queen hades is is an arts activism company and it's designed so that every project that we work on is has a campaign running alongside yeah. it and it's designed for that and yeah. we're really trying to work towards that as we move forward um but I, yeah, you can't determine what people are going to take away from a thing. Um, you can only kind of offer them the ideas that you're wanting, wanting to explore in the piece and, and hoping that they'll take away what you're <laughs> trying to put down, but they may not. And that's, I think that's always a risk when creating art that's trying to say something. Yeah. Because like, how did Queen, um, 
Is it Queen of Hades? Queen Hades. Yeah. Just Queen Hades. I was like, I don't know where I got the old from. <laughs> but Queen Hades, where did that start for you? Like, when did? How long ago did you f- found that? I guess for your own perspective. Um, it had been boiling for like years, and I think over lockdown, the lockdown, the, 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 the lockdown. Um, over the lockdowns, we um, we ended up with this sort of gap as artists I think Mm. and we ended up with this I had show after show after show planned and even in between the two lockdowns that we had in Sydney like I had show after show going back to back and then we went back into lockdown and in that gap um you know I did a lot of different things but I think the thing that came to me most was my passion for feminism and my passion for activism and Mm. this as I was still and am still trying to sort out who I wanted to be as an artist, I think that um, and what kind of work I wanted to make, I think there was a lot of exploration happening and I had this chance to work with Plan International and be one of their activists and ambassadors and advocates and and I think that through that opportunity I sort of came to this great passion of mine yeah. and... Um, realized that that was something that I had to take into my art. So when lockdown ended last year, I was sort of, I felt ready to start a company because I, I had planned it pre-COVID, like <laughs> BC, before COVID. Um, <laughs> and um, I'd pra- planned it then and then um, obviously didn't do it. Um, and so it felt like the right time. And then and then a show that I was, uh, it, I got offered the chance to direct uh, mm. the first show that I directed this year. And, um, yeah, it's sort of been in existence ever since. My God. Yeah. And you're, are you loving it or is it very surreal still? Uh, life is surreal at the moment. (laughs) There is so much going on. Um, like I've basically been back to back directing all year. Um, and then I'm working to open the, a new theater uh, in October. So I'm very very blessed and very um grateful to have all of these opportunities. What's the new theater going to be called? Um it's going to be called Meiraki Arts Bar. Um and it's a three level venue on Oxford Street that has a art gallery on the first level, a gig stage so like um bands, comedy, that type of mm. performance on the second level, burlesque cabaret and then on the top level there's a theater. Um and that's opening in October, so Lots and lots of work to be done on that as well. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh my god! So, do you uh, will you be running all three levels, or are you only going to be um, running the top? So, I'm <laughs> co-artistic director, artistic director with um a colleague of mine, Luke Holmes, um, and we're working together to um program all of the artistic spaces in the venue, and then we've also got directors who are working specifically on the hospitality side because it's got three bars in the venue and it's. Oh going to serve food and all of those things that I know nothing about. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's lots of new um, forays into different art forms that I might not have been familiar with before. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I'm excited about it. And that. it's going to be a permanent venue. Yeah, permanent. Yes, it's a building. <laughs> it's a, it is a building. Yeah. <laughs> you you founded this building. Yeah. I mean, like, was Oxford Street always the plan or was it just kind of like where, where a sort of space was available? Um, we've been looking at a few various different spaces for a while now. Um, and I think 
uh, my two co-directors have been looking at spaces for much longer than I've been involved, but uh, sort of fortuitously have been brought in on the project. And I think, um, yeah, this space really just was already sitting there with so much to offer us because um, mm. it already had the theatre built in and it already had these things built in. So I think that was such a great opportunity for us to actually make use of the the venue already instead of allowing it to be turned into a nightclub when it was fitted out to be a theater um because i think we were other people were pitching to use the venue as like a nightclub and things like that that oxford street kind of already has um, it's got like a lot of 60 of yeah 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 um but it has no arts bar quite no. like this one um so yeah i mean you're not gonna have doof doof music until like 4 a.m. I no, not until I think it's like 11:30 when all the theater patrons have gone home very happy and, and then duffed up music. And then duff, duff. <laughs> I mean, like, because yeah, like Oxford Street is that is kind of the 4 a.m. kind of place. It is not it is. normally a theater life. No, but I think there's so much opportunity for like. It, I mean, it's a great place. You know, lots of artsy people are going there all the time mm. to to go to clubs and things like that. So why not see a show before? Uh, yeah, and, and we're going to be doing um, Sydney's first late night comedy. Um, oh, nice! Show, which is we really are excited for because um, it's lame that Sydney doesn't have enough like 11 p.m. comedy. <laughs> um, yeah, when when everyone goes to sleep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love it when people do late night. Um, I mean, like, have you? Because that's awesome. I Thank mean, you. I I mean, a lot of venues need that, especially with like, I love the idea of a burlesque level. Like, mm. just having, I love burlesque. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's such a new art form for me. I feel like. Um, I have really lived in theatre slash film land for so long um, <laughs> that burlesque and cabaret and, and drag and all of these other art forms that I have seen but not maybe not explored to their full yeah. potential. I'm very excited to be scouting and, and watching and learning so much more about those artists and that art form. Yeah, because I remember like I saw um, the Star Wars burlesque show yeah, in... i wanted to catch that so badly <laughs> it's it's one of the most weird things that i saw but i saw it with my brother and um my sister-in-law and we just we had a ball like it yeah, was right. so funny but it was one of those things that you sit there just going i don't quite understand how someone has just sexualized half of these characters <laughs> but they have um yeah i mean i feel like that's a product of internet culture yes. and like <laughs> we just will we'll, our society will sexualize anything. <laughs> I know, it really will. But I mean, like, you know, I think having especially such a, you know, because I think Oxford Street is weird. It, it is very much, it's always been a queer world, yes. which is great. Um, and then obviously lockdown happened. Or the, okay, no. So what happened was when the restrictions happened on King Street um, mm. in, uh, uh, sorry, in King's Cross, yes. all the King's Cross people moved to Newtown, which then caused Newtown to die yeah. <laughs> uh, severely. And then that kind of made Newtown a bit of a place to go. So it would be nice to have like Oxford become the new Newtown where it's got that theatre vibe to it and it's kind of living again. Yeah, I think so. And I think um, Oxford Street is in going to be in its resurgence anyway. All yeah. the shops along our strip are reviving themselves or have been taken over by new businesses. And I think um, also Mardi Gras is going to be returning to Oxford Street next year. And I think that's all. And we have World Pride next year in Sydney. So I think there's so much that's stuff that's going to be happening on 
Oxford Street in it's, 2023. <laughs> yeah. I know because I haven't been I haven't been to Mardi Gras in like two years, which you know, yeah, because it's, it's in the SCG. Yeah, and it's like very so like like you just got to book a ticket, and I'm like I can't be bothered. I'd rather go to like either watch it on TV or go to the parade. Like it's one of those two things. Yeah, I think it lost some of its a grassroots feeling. Um, like I I did go to Mardi Gras this year, and I, I had a great time, but yeah, it did feel a bit different to the the parade feeling. Of yeah, just being all together and and. It being accessible to everybody, I think. Yeah, because I mean, like, it's like, and it's funny as well because every every time there's a march, and I think it's being COVID related. I haven't really gone to marches since COVID, mm. which sounds really bad, but you know, because obviously there's been a lot of great marches. But I just got this fear in me of getting sick from yeah, like mounds of people it. who clearly have never had like you know, because the thing about marches is like. You go to one march and there might be only anti-vaxxers and you go to another march and there's suddenly, no, you know, everyone's um, vaccinated. And then suddenly, you know, you've just got this weird divide of who you're actually in a march with. Absolutely. I mean, I have been to marches, obviously. Um, <laughs> I would be a bit of a fake activist. I was about to say. How many lives did you destroy if you said no? <laughs> um, but I think that uh, I totally understand people who haven't been going and who didn't. I didn't. Uh, I wasn't able to go in the first lockdown because I was still living with my parents and, mm. um, you know, there was health issues there. And I think that you know that should also be totally okay like not not going to things because you want to protect your health is t- is a more than valid reason how dare you have <laughs> <laughs> i know yeah um but yeah like i mean cuz the 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 recent ones have been the strikes and you know yes. like and at which you know and i feel like our media doesn't really portray marches in ever the best light <laughs> you can't see on the podcast but i'm rolling my eyes oh, yeah. very heavily <laughs> Um, but you know, like I, I love the recent strike where they just slowly, slowly slowed down the trains. They didn't stop the trains or anything. They just slowed them down so yeah. people got to work a little bit later. <laughs> well, finding new ways to inconvenience people is probably a good way of doing it, to be honest. Yeah, um, because I think I think it does. You know, I think often with marches, if you don't cause some kind of disruption and if you don't cause um, inconvenience then no one cares. Um, yeah. And I've definitely been to marches where, like, we you know you all stand outside a town hall of some descript. I was at one in Melbourne earlier this year that was so <laughs> depressing. Like, we all just stood outside the Melbourne town hall or the Melbourne parliament or something, and we mm. just stood there and we we chanted and it was just, like, 40 of us. It was really, really, really sad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, you know, in terms of, Someone actually described me the other day as a disruptor and I felt so flattered. Like it was like the best compliment I could have ever gotten. They were like, I looked at your website and you look like you're a disruptor. And I was like, oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I will destroy your lives. <laughs> I but make I think, it inconvenient. <laughs> but I think it, it is about finding ways to non-violently, of course, because I would never advocate violence on a public platform. Um, <laughs> but I think it is about finding ways to, you know, make people turn their attention and yeah as someone who's done a lot of like social media and um kind of uh written media activism like mm. on platforms like abc and sbs you know it becomes a big deal for like one day and then it goes away and i think that's the problem with the media cycle and and even with really big movements like march for justice or, or blm like it comes and then eventually it just does fade away yeah and i think that you know like 
I remember my mother, the last, I think it was a women's march or anything like that. She messaged me, my dad, and my brother was who was living overseas at the time. And I couldn't make it. And my dad couldn't make it. And I was just, my poor mother had to march to this women's march alone. And I was just like, God, this just makes me a bad person. <laughs> but it's, 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 it is kind of one of those things that I, I do think about, like, you know, the, you can, I feel like it's like, yeah, I agree with you. Marches do some good and you've got to disrupt the flow. But I feel like there's also the other side where marches kind of only hit to a certain point and then they do become like yesterday's news because you hear about marches almost every day. And, and you know, like I, I just cannot stand when politicians sit in front of or talk about in front of the news and just go, oh, these kids should be in school. Uh, and yeah. I'm like, what to educate? <laughs> in what being being like smart and knowing that the climate's fucked or like <laughs> anything like that it's it kind of baffles me that you know but then you you know people write these forums and stuff on the internet and people get slandered by it you know by going it's oh true. you know nothing yeah i mean i've definitely faced um my fair share of um I don't know. I hate the word haters. Um, I feel like yeah. it's like the haters. Um, but I think my fair share of backlash, I would say. Um, you've, I hurt ha- some, you've, you've hurt some. I've hurt some people. <laughs> no, I like. I think um, I had an article uh, uh, last year. I believe it was during the lockdown that was about um, my experience getting vaccinated against COVID nineteen and. Um, how because of the mixed messaging that the government was putting out, it was a confusing time for me and why we needed really clear messaging because, you know, me, a Australian-born, you know, English as my first language, mm. it was confusing. It was yeah. confusing for me. So for people <laughs> who come from diverse backgrounds, for people who are struggling to understand yeah. the information, it, it was problematic, especially, I think, for young people because they were saying, you know, things like, don't get AstraZeneca, and then they were like, do get AstraZeneca, and then yeah. it, it was very confusing, and, and I wrote an article about that, and it went up on the ABC, and, um, yeah, they had to shut down the comments after an hour. Um, wow. Because the the, the vaccine, um, yeah. anti-vaxxers came out in droves um, to, to, A, make fun of me and B, make fun of my name. Um, there wow. Was, there was some great content actually about, <laughs> about Thanos. <laughs> I was about to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I definitely screenshotted a bunch of them because I was like, that's a great joke. Like, <laughs> So I may hate you, but that was pretty good. Your, com- yeah. your, your comedic skills are on top. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, from my perspective as well, we, like my partner Emily and I, we, we were tossing up between the, the – you know, the vaccine and everything. I love the way you just move the mic and yeah. it keeps going back to that position. Um, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, but yeah, like we, we ended up getting AZ and it was kind of our choice. But it, I remember originally we were hoping out for Pfizer. We were just yeah. like, cool, that's the one that every Likewise. doctor says is the best to go. And then suddenly, and I had com- I had mixed messaging from my own parents. Mm. They were like, don't get AZ, you know, get Pfizer, wait until Pfizer. And then the moment AZ became an everyone thing, they were like, get AZ immediately. Go, go, yeah. go. I was like, well, we, the doctors say wait for Pfizer. And then the spike happened. And then they were like, no, nah, just get AZ at this point. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was very confusing. Um, but yeah, like, because the article, basically I said in one interview, I said in one interview that I cried outside the the pharmacy. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's like, I think the media, they just love to sensationalize. They love to take this tiny, tiny thing and turn it into this huge thing. Yeah. And I think particularly around like, 
female emotions for some reason I've like noticed through my time that female emotions are like oh my god what the hell like crying um and so I said like oh yeah like I cried and I like did specify that I like it was like a single tear I I, I specified but <laughs> in the articles tier, okay. it's like she was on the floor devastated and they like really dramatize and, and I'm just like gosh these people should work in my medium <laughs> um because I think they just love to sensationalize and I mm. and I always felt that was so like ridiculous because it, it was like that's not what the article is about the article is not about me crying outside the pharmacy it's about yeah. the fact that it was confusing and so I was like oh my god maybe I'll die single tear but then I went in and did it <laughs> mm. I mean like it's it, it's kind of interesting because I work I work for uh um, like a television station and mm, and right. while I I work in a in sorry a, I hope I haven't been like <laughs> no 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 <laughs> But I mean, like, it's interesting as well because I walk this fine line, which is, I if I were a journalist or a mm. reporter or anything, I would be walking in line of, dear God, I should be fired. Um, but I walk this line of being because I'm a tech, I I do have that outward perspective of going, I don't have to agree with the content we put out. I, yeah. I do my jos- job to the best of my abilities. Mm. That's fine. I get paid for that. But I don't have to care about the content that comes out and nor do I have to actually technically promote it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I feel like having, you know, like worked for two companies now, both uh, Channel 9 and Channel 7, um, they both do the same. They both 100%. And and, and this is what I say about commercial television. It is rinse and repeat. They are all the same. You could mush those, you know, Channel 10, Channel 9, Channel 7 into one channel and no one would notice the difference. Mm -hmm. It's nuts how, like, simple they are. But it does come down to a lot of things where it's like breakfast television in particular sensationalizes on everything. And oh, the, and the yeah. moment I remember when <laughs> I was watching, um, you know, and I was even watching the election election coverage. It was the most abysmal thing I've seen in years uh, on, on every channel. It was just so bad. Um, and it's because no one really knew what to do with a federal election after a lockdown. Like they just didn't know what to do. Um, no one knew what to be in the same studio was like. Um, yeah. No one really knew how to plan. Um, and I, I, you know, it just, I feel like the same thing happened with this pandemic as it did happen with the federal election, which was, you know, the lead up to the election, the opposition were saying, oh, we can make it better. And then the, our, the actual government at the time were just going, do you want part of the same? And we're like, no, we don't. We want yeah. none of the same. I don't know why you're offering just more of this shit. Like it's gone down the toilet. Um, I mean, hey, it worked for them at the previous election, yeah. sort of. So, uh, you know, I think I think it's been a really interesting journey politically. I think that um, I've, I'm have i very glad that we've ended up where we are. Yes. Um, but, you know, I feel that there's still a long way to go. Um, mm. And I, I I always feel this thing about, like, the three-year turnover with Australian politics. I mean, even the four-year one in, in the UK. Uh, sorry, in the US. Um, because I feel like it's very um, – it doesn't look towards long-term, long-term achievement. No. And I think that's always been a really big problem is just how quickly we – um, have turnover so things just happen and things get done and then like the the you know we we change government and then the progress gets undone yeah um, and I'm really hoping that like this labor government will be, will be able to stay in for a fairly decent amount of time to be able to put in some permanent changes if not like long-standing changes um yeah because I think three years is kind of nothing um <laughs> like 
I mean, like, you know, there is an advantage with Anthony Albanese, you know, and, you know, he did come from a working class exactly. background. He did come from community housing. So he has a bit more of a backbone in terms of not privileged his entire life. Exactly. He might be in a privileged position now, but mm-hmm. he knows he didn't start in that. So th- there is that sort of grain of salt with him that he will, you know. But um, but it is interesting because at the same time, um, you know, he kind of talks like your average person. And I feel like people are put off by how, I guess, nonchalant he is. Yeah, I mean, I always find that interesting because I think I I feel drawn to that. I feel like yeah. the, the the politicians speak um, because they do get trained and they get trained in how to speak and all this mm. all this stuff that's kind of ridiculous. Um, it seems kind of false in in itself because if you're supposed to represent the community that you come from, surely you should speak like that community. Um, <laughs> but. You know, um, but I think for me, I'm drawn to it, but I can see how other people would feel drawn to that sense of authority. I, I remember reading somewhere once that um, there was this, that in documentaries, mm. older male voices sound more authoritative naturally to the ear. So mm. we believe them more. So that's why documentary narration is so skewed towards like older male um voices and things like that and it's so like oh my gosh that's so problematic because it's such an ingrained audience response mm. um because we don't normally hear female voices yeah narrating documentaries oh i didn't grow up on that i mean now there's a lot a lot more and that's really great but i didn't grow up on that definitely yeah and i mean like also like david attenborough who i love him to be king bits. yeah king <laughs> you know but he also interviewed like um greta thunberg mm. and that was like one of the sweetest interviews and he just like I love that conversation because he just clearly looks at her as an equal and going, you understand yeah. the problems with the world. You get it. Mm-hmm. And as someone who has been doing it his entire life, yeah, he is happy that someone also gets it and gets how you know, fucked it is and how much it doesn't work, how, you know, we, you know, because coal mining or anything like that, where you're new, using natural resources um and harvesting what the earth is giving us and then basically bleeding it dry and the yes. and destroying natural habitats for animals and stuff like that does destroy the ecosystem like it does automatically mean that we will have over time more likely a higher oh yeah you know like you, and this is the thing i say about the pandemic which is you know it sounds awful but a few years prior to the pandemic we were a high we were just growing exponentially mm-hmm. we were growing in, in population exponentially and i remember my flatmate at the time we joked we were like god there's probably going to be a pandemic in a few years and we with the moment it happened we we're like ironic that we were right mm. and this is the and i say this as a, a general idea but the the earth knows when it's had enough and it does these things periodically it will create mm. a disease it will create a famine and something will emerge and wipe out a huge chunk of us yeah and that is life it is. I mean, that's why there's so much imagery in like literature and art about Mother Nature and, and the personification of the earth because in many ways, you know, I love, 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 love The Matrix and I love that speech that um, Agent Smith yes. gives about human beings are a virus and, mm. and that we breed and we breed and we populate um, because I think it's so um, relevant to the climate crisis and it's so relevant to the overpopulation crisis, um, even if 
you know, the Matrix was talking about lots of different philosophical yeah. issues. I think that um, this idea that we are kind of poisoning the planet and that the planet is retaliating with climate crisis and with more natural disasters is truthful to a point yeah. um and and you know unfortunately though in the western world that doesn't hit enough because often we aren't bearing the brunt of these climate crises you know i, I recently spent some time in fiji and and they were talking about the climate crises that they're facing there you know talking to the local people and and they were talking about the rising sea levels and and all mm. of these things that we've heard a million times before on on the news or on this or on that but I don't think it actually hits you until you're standing with a person who's who lives on a tiny island off of Fiji that might be swallowed up by the ocean. Like yeah. and I think that's the problem is is um with a lot of political issues in contemporary society is that even though we're connected to each other in a way that we've never been in history, we are so disconnected from personal story and personal you know, looking outside of, oh, what affects me and my family, mm. we're, we're not doing that anymore. We don't have that skill of empathy, which is, you know, bringing it back to what I actually do in telling stories. I think it's so important to encourage the telling of stories and to put forward the telling of stories because not just for a political message, but to encourage people to feel empathy towards a character that might not live a life like theirs. Yeah, that's a... <laughs> I mean, like, because with your own storytelling and everything, like, wh where do you start from from a f point for yourself? Where do you always make sure you, like, whether it's directing or creating from scratch, like, where do you start from that perspective to create? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of different ways of doing it. My partner is a, a playwright and a screenwriter, and I think he has a completely different way of approaching writing to me and approaching mm. creation to me personally I tend to start with like what am I feeling I think I have to really listen to my heart and I have to really listen to what my what my even my body like feels drawn to um I think we often think about the creative the act of creation is just in the mind mm. and I do I really believe in the power of the mind but I think I often like feel physically drawn to something if I really am passionate about it um, when it comes to creation from scratch, it's usually about a topic or an issue. I usually start from that. I think about, I get quite deep in, um, I was making a show that unfortunately did die a COVID death. Um, <sighs> but I was making a show about intersectional feminism, um, about a group of feminists who created a colony on the moon and, tried to establish their own feminist society on the moon and what that would look like and the issues kind of discussing the the issues between what is sometimes termed like white feminism or capitalist feminism and intersectional feminism mm. um and to do that I did so much reading and I read all of this literature about feminism from like you know Simone de Beauvoir in the early 20th century all the way up to very contemporary sort of 2020, 2021 writers um, mm -hmm. like Hood Feminism and, and White Feminism by Koa Beck. Um, and that was an interesting starting point for me because I feel like I came into the room when I was facilitating with my performers a lot of information and a lot of uh, different ideas that mm. could be thrown onto the floor. Um, but, yeah, when when it's a script like uh, my show, my upcoming show, Labyrinth, um, at the Flight Path Theatre in Marrickville is a UK play. 
Um, and that play was sent to me by uh, a colleague of mine and I read it and I there was just a few moments in the show that I was like, I have to, I have to be the one to direct the Australian premiere of this play. Like I have to be. Mm. Um, and I won't tell you what they are because <laughs> you can come and see the show. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but there were just some moments that that shows about the Latin American financial crisis of 1979 to 1982, and the it explores um, this sort of shakespearean-esque epic journey of this character who gets brought into the world of economics in the 1970s and helps to lend all of this money to the latin american countries and Mm. um at, at that point in time mexico and a few of the other latin american countries went bankrupt and um oh shit and um couldn't pay back their loans and so then the IMF the International Monetary Fund had to come in and save them and when I read this play I was like how did I not learn about this in school why didn't I and it it really scarily echoes um the Greek financial crisis in the early 2000s and the global financial crisis and and I think really what the playwright Beth Steele is trying to talk about in that play is the cyclical nature of economic crises and why we keep falling into the same trap with capitalism and I feel like for me you know being quite an uh anti-capitalist sort of social of a socialist mindset I think that for me that was a real drawing point for that Mm. particular text but also the text is really surreal and it's huge it's it's such a mammoth and I think I've never gotten to do that before so I'm I'm very I I feel like there's always a different point of uh why you choose an artistic Mm. project um but I think in my early days of being an artist, I I learned the hard way that you can't just like say yes to a gig because it's a gig and because you want it to be on your resume. I think you really have to, you do have to find something that is pulling you towards it because otherwise you're probably going to end up with a project that you're not really happy about. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And, uh, I, I, it's interesting that you talk about like socialism and capitalism because like, <laughs> I, I mean, like anyone who knows me, I hate capitalism. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> it's 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 conformity capitalism. You know, it's it's all baloney. Um, mm. But yeah, it's interesting as well because I feel like capitalism isn't explored. It, it, it you know as big as it should um, yeah. in terms of a very critical way of thinking because we live in a capitalist society we you know our entire that we do um structure is based on you know i give you goods there you give me services this mm-hmm. is how life works and and it's amazing how people aren't very kind mm. and capitalism makes us not very caring and considerate yeah i mean capital particularly our form of free market capitalism is very much a um uh, every man for themselves. Yeah. Oh, I shouldn't say every man, sorry. Every, every person, person for themselves. Um, yeah, bad feminist moment. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I think it does encourage this sort of um, lack of community, which yeah. is something that I feel very strongly because I think that, um, you know, hearing about my parents' upbringing and, and that type of thing, I think I've grown up at a time when, community isn't really a part of life particularly since i've grown up in melbourne and sydney you know to the two Mm. biggest cities in australia um i think that growing up in big cities you you don't find that sense of community except in places like you know for example the theater industry I, i feel like i have a very strong community sitting in the theater industry in sydney and 
Um, but I think that's something that I've come to later. Um, and I do feel that we are losing something as a society from not engaging in, yeah. sac- you know, sacrifice and, and, and um, selflessness and giving back. I think when we say giving back, we always think about like doing your tax deductible donation and, <laughs> and, and things like that, that are, that are ultimately still very, um, very selfish um in some ways and i think that Mm. um which i totally understand like some people don't have the means to give any more but i think we're very unwilling as a society to give time because we always refer to time as money and and those kinds of capitalist ideas that that your time can be commodified and that everything can be commodified down to its monetary value yeah it's it it's very interesting as well because i feel like it you know it goes back to that sort of like you know, young person, you know, word of exposure and stuff like that, especially mm. when it comes to the arts because yes. arts is very capitalistic um, in, in all of the wrong ways. Um, mm. And arts basically started about people wanting to express their opinions and their feelings and their emotions. Yeah. And something that I feel like everyone, yes, needs to eat, sleep and, you know, and live. Um, and, you know, everyone would love money, but, it, uh, you know, because money gets you services and money does this. But, I mean, like, at the end of the day, also, I love just working with people. And that's and that's how I've always viewed it. I don't, I've never viewed it as a capitalism kind mm. of, like, structure for me. And I don't think that's everyone – because it's so interesting as well because, you know, obviously, like, you know, making a film or making anything, it, it, it does have, like, a little bit of budget because you obviously you can't make anything with zero dollars. No. But, um, but you do come to the mentality of, like, where can I cut corners? And some people just don't. Like, some people just, like, oh, no, if you can't. You know, I remember one comment is, like, oh, if you don't have the money, then don't make films. I'm like, but why? That's a, that's a very, like. Yeah, I mean, I think it's great in some ways, particularly the film art form, that it's so accessible these days. Like, yeah, you know, I have an iPhone that just rang earlier, um, <laughs> and and uh, you know, I could make a film on that. Would it be worthy of an Oscar? Probably not, unless I was super good. Um, but you know, I think it is great how we have so much content creation and so much. Um, content being made i mean i have a job at one of the streaming services um where i basically watch the content for them Mm. and um you know that's a really great chance to see like all of the different creativity that's happening um in that particular service and like everything that's being made and and i think it's so great but in terms of money i think there are such barriers um i recently completed the filming of my first ever short film um and I, as a director, and I think that um, that was a really interesting process of like, oh yeah, like there's so much monetary stuff involved that does kind of make the process logistically complicated. Of course, because film equipment is incredibly expensive, even just to rent, um, mm. and all sorts of things that are you know barriers to people who can't afford it or who don't know where to get grants and I and I think there are a lot of barriers in terms of accessing arts funding mm. which I'm really hoping the government will make right because there is such barriers to how to access it the the forms are so complicated and really um kind of really delve into your life and really delve into the project and 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 I think all of that stuff is a barrier even if they even if I understand why they need to make it not just super easy to get government yeah. money yeah, I mean it. It it doesn't make it fair because every time you read those, 
you're like, well, what's my art stand up against? Like, and then you hear like, you know, you've got um, New South Wales creative funding and, and stuff like that. But then you've got Screen Australia and you've got the stuff like that. And, and I feel like when people do get grants or whether they've raised money or fun, you know, fundraisers, campaigns online, you know, anything like that, when you, you kind of learn like how to shift around that money where to kind of spend heaps and then where not to spend heaps and you know kind of it's like a puzzle it's a very weird puzzle to kind Mm -hmm. of like work out but I do think that like one of the things that I think you know like I I, you know it was like back in uni everyone was like oh don't pay the crew pay the cast no don't pay the cast pay the crew like that was something that was a member was thrown about heaps at uni and I was like well you why not just (laughs) why don't you just discuss with everyone how much they are willing to either sacrifice or how mm-hmm. much rent's going to get, you know, gear's going to cost or like, like work out a logistic plan, talk to people and then work out a plan around that. Yeah. I mean, I think I am a big advocate of the minimum way, like the minimum basic wage or mm. basic income. Um, I'm one quarter Swedish. And I think that um, I often look to their society because they have like the basic income um and very low crime rates and all sorts of things that we really should be looking to yeah. as uh as a guiding light for how we could make our society go from being you know a fairly safe privileged society to being one of the world leaders in prog- being progressive and mm. all sorts of different things and i think that um you know there has been the greens have been talking about um bringing in a um Basic income, which obviously is very dependent on Labor's stance and and the other sort of independent stance on that. And it's a very controversial policy because of the idea that being an artist is the same thing as being like a bludger or a druggie or 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 someone who doesn't do anything with their life and i and i think that that is that is where the biggest shift needs to come from particularly in australia is because we are a sporting nation and because we are a nation that prides ourselves on things like sport our cultural identity is not at all shaped by our artistic um, Mm. identity. And I'm headed over to the UK for some time at the end of this year. And I think the difference between our society and their society when it comes to the arts is that it's so ingrained in their culture. Like people sit at home on a Friday night in London and they think to themselves, what are we going to do? And a serious legitimate answer for people who might not even be theatre people is going to the theatre because that is something that you, when you travel to London, you come to London and you see a show and same all over um, the UK actually. Mm. Um, And I think that um, we don't have that in Sydney or in Melbourne really. Um, We don't really have that idea of like, oh, you could go to the footy, but you could also go and see a show. Like it's only really, I think one of the biggest problems, particularly in the independent sector is that we are constantly, um, having to support each, everybody else's shows because we literally like otherwise we wouldn't sell tickets because there's not enough of a broad audience yeah. considering coming and seeing the shows. And I think that's somewhere where it's such a huge cultural shift and we just need more time and we need more value from our governments um, placed on like theatre going, not just at the highest level of like Sydney Opera House and and Sydney Theatre Company and those massive companies, but also like, whoa, a really cool, quirky thing to do in Sydney could be going to this, you know, little flight path theatre, which is on Addison Road and seeing a show, like, you know, and it's like you have to go in and, and it's a whole experience in itself. And I, and I really feel that that's 
something that is missing right now. Hundred percent, and I feel like you know it's it's just like I hundred percent agree with you. And I I feel like we we're not grain to like no not at all. It was very shifted out of me as well as young. Like when I left film school, I was like, yeah, I'm going to make all these creative things, and then it was like, no, nah, get a real job. You know, like it was like mm. get a and and so that's where I became a tech. And while it's been great and I've learnt heaps and I've learnt how to, you know, do gear and, you know, and do photography in my, you know, like in between work and everything and do creative projects on the side, it it is amazing how much people don't want us to be creative in this country. Like, particularly, it, it yeah. is, like, unless you meet like-minded people, <laughs> everyone's lost like, oh. Oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up with surrounded constantly by the because you know as we started this podcast I said you know I've been so committed to it from when I was seven years old everybody knew that was what I wanted to do I Mm. was not shy about it at all but you know at the same time what happened to me was like constantly berated with the question what's your plan b what's your backup all of that stuff and you know for me I always felt very strongly about the idea that you know I didn't need a backup because I was going to make it work and I would rather not have something to fall back on, you know, acknowledging now that 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 definitely comes from a level of privilege that I didn't realize that I had at the time. Um, But, you know, I was very strongly, you know, I I went to a school, a high school where most people are management consultants or (laughs) doctors or lawyers. And and I'm like the artsy kid. Um, And there's like only a few of us in the whole year group that became artists or that have are thus far still mm. artists, um, very, very minimal amount of us. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think it really, it was a test. Like yeah. it, it felt like a test constantly, you know, even for my family, like for my extended family, you know, my, my nuclear family has been very, very um, supportive of me. But I think my extended family, because they re- reside in fields like politics and, and uh, economics and things like that, they're always constantly being like, oh, well, what happens? Like what happens if it doesn't work out? Yeah. Which I know is coming from an intention of like this. It's also this idea that like there are two ways of being an artist. It's completely failing or being <laughs> Tom Cruise or like someone really famous. And that's like really something that I am so passionate about deconstructing, this idea that you can't just be a working artist you don't have to be famous. You don't have to be world famous. Yeah, uh, you you can just create for a living. And I and I think there is this i this very confused idea that we have probably from the US that like if you don't make it, quote unquote, make it whatever that even yeah, I know. means, um, that you ha- that you can't have a life as a as a creative artist. And I and I think that is part of the problem. We have that definitely ingrained in us in Australia because that partially is true because of the way that our art scene is structured where like you either work in independent for your whole life until you give up and get a quote unquote real job (laughs) or you make it quote unquote. But I think that, um, but I think that, um, you know, there are other ways, other societies that design it so that you can Mm -hmm. just be a consistently working artist. You won't be famous but you can be consistently working for your whole life and that's enough. And I think we uh, there's a gap that's missing between like being an emerging, exciting new artist and being an established, yeah. constantly working artist where like a lot of people are falling away or they're moving overseas to try and seek out those opportunities that don't exist here. And we are losing 
so many artists overseas. Like I can't even describe how many I feel that we are losing to mm. overseas. And and rightly so, those overseas places should be able to take credit for them because if we in Australia can't recognize and foster their talent, we don't deserve to say, oh, they're Australian at the end yeah. after we've done very little to support them. Yeah. I 100% I, I feel like you've just hit the nail on the head with how I feel about because yeah. <laughs> I was like just nodding in agreement to everything you were saying. I, I do think that I think it's a shame because, you know, like it, it, it's we live in this society. We live in this very, you know, like you or I can sit here and go, oh, we're, we're artists. We're really smart and clever and, you know, mm. we know what we're doing. But at the same time, people will look at us going, you're nuts. And It's true, yeah. And I don't think – I remember saying this to one of my friends. Um, he He's a um, like a visual arts designer and stuff, but he's had on and off work his entire life. And I said to him, I was like, oh, yeah, the comprehension of doing like most stuff um, if I were to get work when I started was basically just seeing what I could get and whether or not that would be paid is entirely based on what I could get and what projects interest me. But it was never, you know, like the whole journey was just to try and get my name out there. Mm. And even, I think even like the most I got my name out there was this podcast, which suddenly got me known by many people and that is like one, it's a great thing. I love it. But at the same time, it's so bizarre that before then, no one really knew much about me. They mm -hmm. just kind of knew me as, oh, it's that guy who does film. Yeah. Like, that's all they know. And that, like, as great as that is, it's like, well, I also do a lot of other things. And I am trying to create art that actually speaks to people and, and you know, get people's stories across. That, you know, like they, you know, people will look at you and hope for that you stick around in Australia. Because like but the, the same thing here is like we, you know, my partner and I, we don't contemplate staying here in Australia because it's not as profitable. Mm. It's not. Yeah. Well, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going over to London and I didn't say it, but I am moving there. So. Okay. There you go. So there you go. There, and and <laughs> I'm not, I'm not ashamed that I'm making that choice for myself. Like I am sad that I don't feel like it's sustainable to be here mm. and to remain here. But I, but I feel like you know you have to look out for yourself in in this in the environment that's been mm. designed for us. Like and and you know my partner is also from there, so that's another addition. incentive. Yeah, incentive. Um, but I think you know uh, why not? Uh, firstly, going and experiencing other kinds of art as well, because I've not really had the chance to experience other kinds of um, theater outside of the Australian kind of zeitgeist yeah. of theater, and I think that's really important. And and Australian. I mean, I've obviously experienced like US films and things like that, but I think experiencing other industries is a really beneficial thing, even if you are going to come back to Australia and give it back into our industry. Mm. Um, but I do kind of feel a torn about it because I'm like, you know, part of me is like, yes, let's all like escape Australia. <laughs> and then, you know, there'll be no artists. There'll be no one. There'll be no good quality stuff being made. And then there will be a there'll be a, it will be forced we will be forced but that's also coming from a, a a place of like you know hoping that people would notice if we lost our art scene and i mm. honestly can't say whether or not that would happen and i feel like it's a very complicated um issue because yeah i do hope to be able to give back so much into the community here and and to help as my career grows wherever i am to be able to give it back into here and to help activate change um 
in in Australia because I think the ideal is that Australia does come, you know, even New Zealand, which is a a very small country, has somehow managed to make themselves a world player in terms of cinema. Mm. Um, they've managed to they have such a specific identity in terms of the cinema that they create, and and I think we don't have that here. We don't have that that idea of what what is Australian cinema, what is Australian art, what does it look like, and and how do we find that identity in in the midst of so many identities being a part of the Australian zeitgeist and, and the Australian milieu, so to speak? I think I think that um, we are still finding what this new you know post that kind of quote unquote Australian classics where we have like things like the castle and Muriel's wedding, which are all very like Anglo Australian. Mm identity now that we've recognized that we are a multicultural nation and we have so many stories from so many different places what does that new identity look like for us in terms of art and where can we find it and how and there are going to be people who make amazing cinema and amazing other kinds of art that will help to forge that identity and I'm very excited to see and hope that that will happen in the course of my lifetime yeah, I feel like that's not going to happen until we're like fifty. Uh, you never know; it might be it might be one of us. Yeah, I know, no, like either one of us, or maybe not. Um, but you know, like I, it is interesting because yeah, like you you look at the pinnacle films of like you know, and and even in recent years, it's like the dressmaker and stuff uh, like yeah, it's, it's so Anglo. It's very Anglo, I think. Um, you know, and I. I feel like it also just just in terms of like our cast and and stuff like the actors who end up going overseas mm. like you know you know Jeffrey Mar- Rush has made a huge name for himself um, Nicole Kidman uh, <laughs> you know and then um, also um, oh what's a oh, what's a name um, why is my na- name gone blank um, was in uh, the Great Gatsby and uh, uh, oh. Guardians two and stuff like that. Um, no idea. Tall, thought, very tall. tall. <laughs> I thought you were going like Kate Blanchett. No, or Margot I mean, I could. <laughs> I mean, like those two as well. Yeah, yeah like Elizabeth Dubecki was. Yes. Our, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, Elizabeth Dubecki, who's been in almost like everything I see. Yeah. Um, Margot Robbie, obviously, as you mentioned, um, huge just star, huge. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Kate um, Blanchett, who's just. Oh, Love her to bits. Yeah. Yeah. Very um, long-lasting career. Uh, yeah, and I, I just, but you know, like. A lot of them are all Anglo-Saxon. Mm. You know, you don't really see, like, you know, you know, indigenous or you know, like. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think there's people who sort of make it just to the, the the brink of it, and 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 for some reason can't take that extra step and that extra level. And and I think that is partially like because we are often encouraged to you know drop the Australian accent, yeah. drop drop all of that stuff in order to make it universal which it really bothers me because you know uk and us stuff is considered universal despite the fact that they're using their natural accents and i, and I think it's wrong to expect us to drop it because yeah it, it, it's ridiculous and i and i think that um australians really need to find some confidence into on the international scale of, of our worthiness of our art form and our worthiness of that we our identity can matter just as much, even yeah. if we haven't, you know, even if we're 
supposedly a, a young country if you take it from the point of colonization like i think we still have just as much to offer um and if new zealand can do it we can definitely do it like, <laughs> i know i know you know jacinda ardern mm, my yes, favorite person the, my favorite person in the whole world yeah. she is amazing um but yeah like 100 it, it's and and i feel like with you know well the blockbusters and everything that coming out of the moment which we do rinse in them repeat like i recently came back and saw jurassic world which seems like a forgettable film yeah. Uh, but it, it you know like that sense of wonder and excitement that we used to get from cinema kind of is fading over time and yeah, absolutely like there's a lot more films that i'm less excited to see now than there was like you know even like five years ago oh and i i think that all comes down to original content um you know there are so many people creating original content for things like TikTok and and short form original content on even platforms like YouTube and stuff, even though that's kind of old hat now, podcasts yeah. even. Um, but I think that in terms of cinema, because of what some refer to as the the death of of going of the act of going to the cinema, I think that there is this lack of desire to take a risk. And and mm-hmm. because of the streaming companies as well, like where you can get anything in your home at any time. Um, but I think when I listen to like Ryan Reynolds is a really big advocate of like creating new original stories, not, not participating too much in the franchise world because, and you know, he made free guy, which like, if you haven't seen and you're listening to this podcast, please go and watch it because it's so random, but it's so good because it's just, I never like, it's just something I wouldn't have thought of and I wouldn't, I didn't know what to expect. And I was very pleasantly surprised by that film because I feel like when you, see a franchise film you kind of know what to expect and and we really live in this like superhero age we live in in the in the era of this mass superhero yeah creation and i and i think tv in terms of original content tv is where it's at like television um because they're just making so much original content for the short for like 20 yeah. 40 minute episode form um and cinema is unfortunately taking a step back from that and taking us a, a back seat in terms of being the an art form that people really create in yeah um you know on on sort of the blockbuster level i think still independent filmmakers are making great stuff but you know there's also in australia but in general i think there's not enough of a culture of of looking outside the blockbuster yeah um and the crossover between the independent and the blockbuster and and why can't we have more independent stuff in cinemas i live literally on top of a cinema and I very rarely go there um, because often they're just showing the blockbusters that I don't really want to see. And I think I would love to see more independent stuff and I would love to see more stuff that could surprise me. And um, mm. But I can get it on my couch so I don't need to walk downstairs to the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like a hundred percent as well, and I and I love most of what Ryan Reynolds does, and I feel like you know what Netflix does, which you know, like starting out with Stranger Things season one, was really clever, it was really original, and now over the time, that's felt more like a blockbuster. Yeah, and I and I just kind of go yeah, whatever now with it, and 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 that you know, it just goes to show that. I don't want my stories to be like big bangs and mm. explosions and stuff. I want good character moments and good character beats and an actual yeah. story. I mean, I in terms of the like the quality of writing for me is number one priority. I I think I've definitely learned my lesson about um signing on to projects where the writing is kind of, you know, you can be the best director in the world, I think, but if you're given a pile of shit, you 
end up with a just slightly nicer looking pile of shit. And I and I think it's and I think it's it's really important to focus on the text up if you're working in a medium yeah. that's that's based on dialogue. Um, you know, there are lots of theater makers and practitioners and dancers and all sorts of people that don't work from text and, and I cannot speak to what that process is. But for me, who works very much from the script forward, I think that making sure that you seek out writers and seek out scripts and texts that are so solid that you can't just like easily poke holes through because I, f- I feel like that's what's happening is is like somehow in the pitch chain from like conception to the writing there's just something being missed where we're not focusing on really getting solid solid scripts we're focusing on all this other stuff you know I definitely over here in my unnamed office things about um things about you know where casting on the basis of how many followers a person has and things like that where I feel totally gutted that that's what our society has come to even though I completely understand that from a marketing perspective the more followers the more viewers the more viewers the more money and I totally understand from that like capitalist perspective but it it feels wrong to bring that into like the way that we shape a creative process Mm. because I think the best stuff being made is the stuff where creators hold their ground. And and if I could say anything to artists, it would be hold your ground on the stuff that you believe is going to make or break your work because there are so many stories of that. Like uh, Michaela Cole, I May Destroy You, great example of someone who was offered a crazy amount of money from Netflix to make her show but wanted to own it and wanted to have creative control over it and so said no to them. And I, and I think, you know, that paid off for her. She won um an emmy and all these kinds of things and that you know on a large scale that paid off for her but i think even in the small you know independent sectors you know hold Mm. your ground and and don't let people take advantage of you because i think as artists we are so easily taken advantage of by the sense of the smell of opportunity and i think that um that's really unfortunate because it does it does i've been thinking a lot about artistic integrity and what that really means because i think it's a word that it's a phrase that gets thrown around so much about like what is it to be in in have integrity when you make art? And I think we throw it around as a kind of wanky term that's like, oh, I do. Um, <laughs> but I think what it really does mean is is whatever you believe and whatever you feel reflects your art form and your story best to hold to that and not to allow opportunity or money or other things to compromise that to a certain point I completely understand that life is full of things where you have to compromise at some point um but yeah I definitely feel that being having integrity is about holding your ground for the art Hmm. yeah I love that I loved all of that (laughs) sorry if I went on a rant and (laughs) no I loved that I was just like listening, going, mm-hmm. I'm loving all of this. Um, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna steer this towards um, to wrap us up. Yes. But I do, I, I like, I, I absolutely think you've you nailed that on the head as well, because you know, like, I could talk about this all day. It's one of those topics that I just, I love dissecting and and um, and you know, clearly you are and I are alike <laughs> in that regard. So, but I mean, like, yeah, it's. It, you know, I, God, when, you know, we're old and, and, you know, gray and everything, I really hope, I really hope cinema and, and theater has really shifted. Me too. Um, because it, it feels like, you know, it, it, it's, you know, 10 steps forward, 20 steps back kind of mm-hmm. thing sometimes with our, with 
what what's interesting and and I think like um we recently watched the bubble as a prime example of a film that has every subverted subtext in in terms of yeah. slap in the face it's great but it's it's, great. it's just like well all these actors are awful people and all of them are just like influences and and like yeah. drug addicts and and it's just the reality that we live in it's like well how do they get through life they're all got addictions to something or they all had failed relationships so they're all like one's the youngest is the tiktok sensation at the mm. moment it's the only reason she was hired like yeah. i think that's brilliant because you know it's it's weird and but also very truth yeah absolutely and i and i think it's like very um great to see that there are some people who are willing to take like and companies that are willing to take risks like netflix is on like stuff like the bubble and yeah where it's just so random um and <laughs> it's such a fun movie and it you know it gets panned by the the critics um which never trust the critic oh well, okay. i don't trust the no, no, i don't um but i think that um you know it's not about the fact that it gets panned. It's about the fact that I was like, I don't know what this movie is. And then I watched it and was like, that was actually really interesting. And like had in it deep ideas, even if it feels like a surface level silly comedy. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the best kind um, of work really. Um, I'm really big into satire, big into um, sorry to bother you and, and those kinds of texts that mm. are trying that are so satirical but really like actually exploring something so deep and so anti-capitalist and anti-patriarchy <laughs> at its core i feel like everyone's just learned a lot about how much you hate <laughs> <laughs> capitalism and patriarchy oh well if they didn't know before they shouldn't <laughs> have been following me <laughs> <laughs> oh my god um to wrap us up though uh, I'm going to get you to um, answer. Where can people find you, Margaret? And where can they stalk you on the internet? Where can people find me? Um, well, you can find me on Instagram at margaret.thanos. Um, I also have a website if you search Margaret Thanos. <laughs> um, it comes up, I think. Um, and yeah. <laughs> it does. Uh, can uh, confirm. Yeah. So that's where you can find me. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank chatting. you so much for having me. It's I had a great time. I'm glad. <laughs> I had a blast. Um, and no, no, thank you. It's been a really um, If you want to go and check out more episodes of The Things We Do, you can check them out on Apple and Spotify. I'll be speaking with another guest next week, and I'll speak to you all later. Goodbye. Goodbye.